It is good to be here today on the Lord's Day. We are thankful for your presence. If you're visiting, we are always glad to have you in our midst. Please be back tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to have a singing, but we would be delighted to have you here at that time. We're going to discuss a, a, a subject today that needs a little bit of introduction. Several things I want to tell you about it. The first one is that as a preacher... If I were to pick one topic that I received the most questions about, I would say it would be undoubtedly marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It would be a very rare week that I do not receive questions on this, either through GBN, World Video Bible School, Facebook, uh, here at the church building on a regular basis. I have people who want to come and discuss this subject with me, and oftentimes it is heart-wrenching. The second thing I want to say about this is it is a topic that is sometimes difficult and is emotionally packed. And number three, it's a topic that sometimes is not discussed in the Lord's Church because it is difficult. And I am thankful that we've got elders that stand firmly on this and that have a very good understanding and grasp of this subject. So what we're going to do today is this. We're going to use Matthew chapter 19 as our outline. If you want to open your Bibles there, you can follow along and that will be helpful to you. Secondly, what we're going to do is we're going to bring out some points about God's law on marriage as we go through this. And then thirdly, I have picked out what I believe to be the most common, the three most common errors on this subject, and we will deal with those very briefly. So. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, I want you to observe that the text says that the Pharisees came to Jesus tempting Him. Immediately we learned that they were not asking from a pure motive. They were not asking because they sincerely wanted to know the answer to this question. They were trying to trap Jesus. Because you see, amongst the Jews of that day, they were greatly divided on the question of marriage and divorce. There were two prominent schools of thought among the Jewish leaders. One was the school of Hillel, a Jewish rabbi, and those from that line of thinking taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, for the slightest offense. If he even disliked her manners, then he could divorce her. In fact, he wrote this, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. And so, if she burned the bacon, it wouldn't have been bacon because they were Jews, but if she uh, ruined the dinner, then he could divorce her. He based his opinion on Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 that says, if she find no favor in his eyes, then he may give her a bill of divorcement. And he interpreted the find no favor to be any reason. The other school of reasoning was that of a rabbi named Shammai. Those who held to his line of thought believed that a man could divorce his wife only for adultery. Ironically, they based their thinking on the same verse of Scripture, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, 
But they focused in on the part that says, because he hath found some unseemly thing in her, and they interpreted the unseemly thing to refer to adultery. Now, I understand that there was a third position that came along a little bit later, and it was taught by a rabbi named Akiba. And he latched on to the phrase, find no favor, and he taught that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman who was better looking than she is. And so if he finds a woman he thinks is just prettier, he could divorce his wife and he could marry that woman instead. And so the Pharisees came to Jesus not looking for a, a true answer, but they were looking to trap Jesus. They were hoping to pit one of these groups against him. And so they said, Rabbi, we've got a, a question for you. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, this is the first point I want us to notice with regard to God's law on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and that is God's law on marriage involves a male and a female. When I started preaching 30 years ago, I did not include this as one of my points in this type of sermon because it just went without saying. But we live in a different world now in which it is legal for a male to marry a male and a female to marry a female. So we need to observe God's law on marriage involves a male and a female. Now, they came to Jesus and said, can a person get divorced for every reason? It is very interesting to see that Jesus responded and said, have you not read? They wanted to know, can we get divorced for any reason? And what Jesus does is he goes back to the source of authority. Jesus does not say, well, I feel like. He doesn't say, I think. He doesn't say, it seems to me. Jesus said, have you not read? He went back to the source of authority on marriage, and that is the written Word of God. Now, you know, that seems like the obvious thing to do, but many people today do everything but that. I remember having a discussion with a man one day on the telephone. He was in an unscriptural marriage situation, and as we went through what the Bible said, he said, I, I know, I see, but it just seems to me that... And I said, but, but the Bible says... He said, yeah, I know, but it just doesn't feel right. You see, Jesus did not appeal to, what, to the way it felt. He did not appeal to emotions. He said, have you not read? Have you not gone to the Bible to see what God says about this? All right, law number one is marriage is for a male and a female. All right, verse 5. He said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, they two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Alright, several points from this verse. Our first point is that marriage is for a male and a female. Our second point is that marriage is for life. The Pharisees wanted to know about getting a divorce, and Jesus' response was, let not man put asunder. In other words, don't get a divorce. 
The Lord said that the original intent for marriage was for a man and a woman to remain married until death. This is Romans chapter 7 and verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And so marriage is for life. That's the second law that I want you to get. Here is the third one. And that is, God is the one who does the joining. And verse 6, he says, What therefore God has joined together. God does the joining, not the preacher, not the judge. And so what that means is, if you don't meet God's qualifications for marriage, He will not join you. You will not be married in His eyes, even though the state might give you a piece of paper saying that you are married. You know, since 2015, in our country, homosexual marriage has been the law of the land. But even though they are joined, according to the Supreme Court of the United States, God does not join them in marriage. As far as God is concerned, they are not married. They are just committing fornication. All right, point number one. Marriage is for a male and a female. Number two, marriage is for life. Number three, God is the one who does the joining. And then I want to suggest to you that not only is God the one who does the joining, but God is also the only one who can do the loosing. That is, He is the only one who can separate the marriage bond. Now first, that only makes sense. If He's the only one who can do the joining, it only makes sense that He's the only one who can do the releasing. And if people have to meet God's qualifications to be joined, it follows that people also have to meet God's qualifications to be separated or released from the marriage bond. Now, the text says, let not man put asunder. Now, somebody might say, well, Don, that sounds to me like man can put asunder or else God would not have told us to do it. I don't believe that's what he's saying. I don't want to bore you to death, but I want you to listen to this for just a second. The Greek verb here that is translated as put asunder is a connotative present verb, which means it's present tense rather than aorist tense. You say, what are you talking about? Why is that important? Because what it means is this. The present tense stem on a verb oftentimes indicates an attempt at something without it actually being done. And so what that means is this. The force of this passage very well could be, don't even try to put it asunder. That is, when you are married, if you have not met God's qualifications, don't even try to separate it. Why? Because God does not release you from the marriage. All right. Four points. Marriage involves a male and a female. It's for life. God does the joining and God does the loosing. All right. Oftentimes people come to me with marriage and divorce situations that are very difficult to unravel. They get sticky sometimes. There are four principles that I oftentimes use that help to, to sort this out. And here they are. Number one, only God does the joining. Number two, God only joins according to His laws. Number three, only God does the loosing. And number four, God only looses according to His laws. By following those four points, it will greatly simplify sorting out marriage and divorce 
scenarios. All right. The Pharisees came and they asked Jesus, for what reason can a man get a divorce? And Jesus says, don't get a divorce. Now, I've got the idea at this point they thought, all right, we have caught him. This is even better than we hoped. He said, don't get a divorce. But Moses said, give a writing of divorcement. He's against Moses. That's great. That's better than Hillel. That's better than Shammai. And so verse 7, they say unto him, why then did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus said, when God designed the home and the institution of marriage, He never intended for it to be corrupted the way man have done. He never intended for men to get tired of their wives and put them away. He never intended for adultery to take place and fornication to occur. But men have brought about this corruption. And Moses, because of your hard, stubborn hearts, suffered this. But he said, from the beginning it was not so. All right, here's the key verse, verse 9. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her which is put away, does commit adultery. Now, let me restate this in our modern words. What Jesus is saying is this. If a man puts away his wife and he remarries, he commits adultery. That is the rule. If he puts away his wife for any reason and marries someone else, he commits adultery. That's the rule. Now, he gives one exception to the rule. The exception is if you put your wife away for fornication and you marry another, then you are not committing adultery. Now, what is fornication? The word fornication is from a Greek word, pornea. It means illicit sexual intercourse. This is an umbrella term, and it covers a wide range of things. It certainly covers adultery, homosexual relations, bestiality. This exception, fornication, is the only one that Jesus made that allows a man to divorce his wife and remarry without sinning. Now, a question that oftentimes has come up is, can a woman put her husband away if she catches him looking at pornography? And the reason this comes up is because in Matthew 5.28, Jesus said, But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. And they'll say, see, he committed adultery in his heart, so can she put him away for adultery? And the answer is no. The word that's translated as fornication in Matthew 19.9 involves two people. You cannot commit fornication by yourself. Lusting is adultery of the heart, but it is not actual adultery. Just like hate is murder in the heart, but it's not actual murder. So let's apply the principle that, that the Lord lays down in Matthew 19.9. Let's say there's a man in the first century, and he marries a woman, and a few years down the road, he decides to divorce this woman. Later, he decides he wants to remarry. How would he know whether he has the right to remarry? He simply needs to ask, do I fit the exception of Matthew 19.9? Am I a person who put my spouse away for fornication? What if the answer uh, is, no, I put her away for incompatibility? 
then he can't remarry. He did not put her away for fornication. What if he said, we just can't get along? Then the answer is no, he can't remarry because that is not fornication. And so, according to Matthew 19.9, he cannot remarry. Now, it should also be mentioned that it is not required for the innocent party to put their spouse away for fornication. People need to understand if your spouse does commit fornication, you have the option to put them away, but God gives that as an allowance. Certainly, they could opt to remain together, and that would be fine in the sight of God. Now, when the disciples hear Jesus say this, they are shocked. They are amazed by how strict this is. Listen to verse 10. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is good not to marry. That is, they were essentially saying, Lord, this is very, very strict. If this is the way it is, maybe it's better just not to get married. And so for people today who say, I can't believe that God's law would be that strict, or as some people have said, I just can't believe that God would expect me to, to live the rest of my life unmarried. I can't believe that. They need to go back and look at what Jesus said. Because what Jesus said was very, very strict. Verse 11, He said unto them, All men cannot accept this saying. Now what saying is Jesus talking about? Some people think that He's talking about the law of marriage that He just laid down. I don't think that's right. I think he's responding to the disciples' statement. That is, they said, hey, it's better not to marry if this is the case. And Jesus is saying, not all men can accept that. That is, not all men can choose not to get married and to remain single. He says, but only those to whom it has been given. That is, some people can take that route, or maybe I should say some people can choose not to take that route. Verse 12, he says, for there are eunuchs. That is, there are people who remain sexually inactive. They don't engage in the intimacies of marriage. He says, because they were born that way from their mother's womb. That is, some people are born in such a way that they cannot participate in sexual activity. He says, and then there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Sometimes it has been the case, such as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were physically maimed so that they could not engage in sexual intimacy. Then he says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, to whom does that refer? I think there would be several that would fall into this category, but I believe that at least one of them would include people who have lost the scriptural right to get married, and so for the kingdom of heaven's sake, they remain unmarried. That is, they can't get married again according to God's law, but they say, I want to go to heaven, so I'm going to remain faithful to God, and I will thus remain unmarried. All right, let's change gears, and I want to talk about some doctrinal errors relating to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There are a lot of them. I picked what I believe are the three most common. Here is the first one. It is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a chapter that is commonly appealed to to suggest an additional reason why a man may divorce and remarry. And specifically, verse 15, people call that the Pauline privilege. Now, I'm going to take three or four minutes to go through this chapter. 
There is a lot of great stuff in this chapter. In fact, I'm going to do a whole sermon on this chapter uh, later. But right now, let's just stick to uh, the subject on marriage and divorce. In verse number 8, he is going to give some advice to single people. That is unmarried. He says to them, it is better to marry than to burn. The King James leaves it there, saying it's better to marry than to burn. Some people have interpreted that to mean it's better to marry than to burn in hell. That's not the intent. The New King James captures this better when it says it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That is, if you have this burning desire, sexual desire, it's better to get married. All right. Then in verse number 10, he says this, Now to the married, that is, I spoke to the unmarried, now to the married, he says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm simply reiterating what Jesus has already taught. A wife is not to depart from her husband. What does it mean a wife is not to depart from her husband? The word here is chorizo. It is found also in Matthew 19 and verse 6, where the Lord says that a woman is not to separate, that they are not to put asunder or separate. Jesus is not talking about a separation here. Sometimes when people read verse 10, that a woman, he says um, that a wife is not to depart from her husband. Sometimes people have thought that this is referring to a separation, like a trial separation like people would do. They're apart for six months and they want to see how that works. And that's not what he's discussing. In the Bible times, they did not have anything that they would refer to as a trial separation. The Bible doesn't know anything about that arrangement. What Paul is talking about here when he says that a wife is not to depart from her husband is the term for divorce. A wife is not to divorce her husband. Now, if she does it anyway, she has two choices. Number one, she is to remain unmarried. Number two, she is to be reconciled to her husband. That is the options. He says, don't do it. Don't leave. If you do, you're sin. You've sinned when you do that. But what's your status? You either have to remain unmarried or you've got to reconcile with your husband. Incidentally, here's an interesting question. How could she remain unmarried and have a husband? How can you be unmarried and have a husband? Remember this. God only separates according to His laws. God only separates for death and fornication. And so, if she divorces him for a reason other than fornication, God doesn't separate them. That's the reason she can't remarry, because she's still bound to, quote, her husband. That's why Matthew says, if she does remarry, she is committing adultery. There's a good example of this in Matthew 14 and verse 3, where Herodias had divorced her husband Philip, and she marries King Herod. So she divorced one, she married Herod, but the Bible still refers to her as Philip's wife. Why is that? Because though she divorced Philip and married Herod, God had not loosed her from Philip. And so she is still Philip's wife. All right, here's verse number 12. He says, but to the rest, not... He says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, says this. Sometimes people have interpreted this to mean that Paul is giving his opinion or Paul's giving something 
a different, in addition to what Jesus said. That's not what's happening at all. What he is saying is, Jesus did not specifically address this, but I now am going to address this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. That is, if you were married to a non-Christian, is it okay to remain in that situation or should you divorce her because she's a non-Christian? We might think, why in the world would somebody ask that in the first place? Why would a Christian say, if I'm married to a non-Christian, should I divorce her? You need to understand, under the Jewish system, God did not allow Jews to be married to non-Jews. In fact, it was a sin, and they had to separate from them. Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4 said, Jews can't marry non-Jews. If you're one of God's people, you can't be married to someone who is not one of God's people. Ezra 10 and verse 10 said, if you did that, you had to divorce them. So it would be a natural thing for a Christian to ask, Hey, what if I become a Christian and I'm married to a non-Christian? Should we stay together? And his answer is yes. Verse 13, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let him not divorce. That is, if a woman's married to a non-Christian, stay with him. If a man's married to a non-Christian, stay with her. All right, verse number 15. This is the key verse that people latch on to. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. The idea that is sometimes taught is this. If your spouse leaves you, that is, they depart, then you are, quote, not under bondage. We are told that what that means is you are released from the marriage bond and you are free to remarry. Again, people call this the Pauline privilege and they say that this is a second reason that a man may divorce and remarry. This is being added to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, that is fornication. So a second reason is desertion, according to this passage. Let me show you the problem with this idea. Let me show you the error with this assertion. Number one, Paul does not use the word in verse 15 that refers to the marriage bond. When he says not under bondage, this word bondage is not the word for marriage bondage. This is the word that refers to the bond of slavery. There is a word that refers to the marriage bond, and he uses that same word in this chapter in verse 27. He uses that word in this chapter in verse 29. He uses that word in Romans chapter 7 in verse 2 when he's talking about marriage. But in verse 15, when he mentions bondage, he does not use the word for marriage bond. He uses the word for slavery. And so here's a Christian woman and she's married to a non-Christian man, and that non-Christian man decides, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I don't like this Christianity stuff. You know, you're different now. I'm out of here. What is she supposed to do? Is she supposed to follow him around like a puppy? Is she supposed to beg him to take her back? Is she supposed to act like she is his slave? Paul says, no, you are not his slave. Let him go. Now, the question is, does that imply that she can marry someone else? 
If he had used the word deo, which is the marriage bond, then we would conclude that she's free to marry someone else because he would be saying she's not under the marriage bond. But that's not the word that he uses. He uses a different word that means she's not a slave to him. Now, a second point about this passage is this is written in a perfect participle. Literally, what it means is this. She is not now, nor has she ever been. Paul is saying, you are not his slave, nor have you ever been his slave. If this were referring to the marriage bond, Paul would be saying, you are not now, nor have you ever been married to him. That doesn't make any sense. That is not right. So what he is saying is, if he leaves you, you are not a slave to him, nor have you ever been a slave to him. You follow Jesus Christ. Now someone says, well, what is she supposed to do? Why did he just leave us hanging? Why didn't he tell her what her situation is? He did tell us back in verse number 10, he says she has to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. That is the option. It does not give her the right to remarry. All right, I am getting long here, but let me go to the next marriage divorce error. The second most common that I oftentimes hear, maybe this is the top one, and that is that baptism washes away unscriptural marriages. The idea is that when a person enters into an unscriptural marriage, an adulterous marriage, if it's before he's a Christian, that when he is baptized, that adulterous marriage is washed away, and it is now a non-adulterous marriage. Now, somebody might say, well, Don, that kind of makes sense because baptism washes away all sin. But you see, there's a major problem with this, and it's called repentance. Before a person can be forgiven of any sin, he must first repent. That is true of stealing. It's true of idolatry. It's true of lying. It's true of homosexuality. It is true of an adulterous marriage. You see, a person who's living in an adulterous marriage is living in a constant sin. And in order to be forgiven of that, they have to stop living in that sin. I want you to consider a homosexual couple. What if a homosexual couple is married and they learn the gospel and they're baptized? Does that baptism make their homosexual marriage right? No, it doesn't make it right. You say, it's still sinful. They've got to stop it. The same thing is true for a heterosexual marriage that is a sinful marriage. They've got to stop it in order to make it right. Let me move to the third one here. I could say more, but for the sake of time. The third most common um, error that I hear about marriage and divorce is that non-Christians are not amenable to the law of Christ. Basically, it goes like this. They will say that Matthew chapter 19 and God's law for marriage is part of the covenant law for Christians. And so, before you become a Christian, God's law on marriage doesn't apply to you. And so what that means is, if a person enters into an unscriptural marriage before he becomes a Christian, he's not sinning. He's not um, violating Matthew 19 because Matthew 19 doesn't apply to him. And so he could have been married and divorced unscripturally ten times before he becomes a Christian, and it doesn't matter. 
he has to keep whichever wife he's on at the time that he becomes a Christian. And so if he's on his tenth wife and he's baptized, now God's law on marriage, divorce, and remarriage applies to him, and he has to start with that wife. Friends, this position is absolutely false. God's law on marriage applies to everybody. You know, Acts 17 and 30 says, In the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. The point of that passage is, in the past, there were some things that God overlooked, especially with regard to the Gentiles, but now all men everywhere are amenable to the law of Christ. Now, it is sometimes argued, well, Don, there are certain laws that apply only to Christians and do not apply to non-Christians. For example, they would say the command to partake of the Lord's Supper. That only applies to Christians. It only applies to people who are in a covenant relationship. They would argue that marriage is in that same situation. This is not a valid argument. You know, it is the fact that God has commanded all men everywhere to obey the gospel and to worship Him, and that includes all of the acts of worship, including partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, before a person can do that, he's got to qualify himself by becoming a Christian, but the command to partake of the Lord's Supper still applies to him. It's not that it doesn't apply, it's just that he has something he has to do first. That would be like saying a person who doesn't believe yet isn't commanded to be baptized. Of course he's commanded to be baptized. He has a prerequisite, and that is he has to believe first, but he is commanded to be baptized. Friends, God's law on marriage applies to all of humanity. Listen to this, and I'm going to wrap it up. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul says this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, that is homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. But you've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. What he is saying is this. Some of you were guilty of adultery before you became Christians. If you can be guilty of adultery before you became a Christian, that means that God's law on marriage applied to you before you were baptized. All right, I know that I have gone long, so I'm going to stop there. We'll cover some more of this later. Thank you for your good attention. It may be that we have someone here today who is in need of obeying the gospel. If that is the case, we want you to know to become a Christian, you need to hear the gospel, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Christ, and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. If you are here this morning and you want to do that, we are ready to assist you. If you're a Christian who, have sin, who has sin in your life, maybe it's of a public nature and you want to make a public confession, we would be honored to go to God and to pray for you this morning. Today, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, you have the opportunity, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.